0: What do these four or five things have in common? Carbon monoxide, arsenic, belladonna, and hemlock. Anybody have a... What's that? that? They will kill you. All of those things are poisonous. Carbon monoxide, arsenic, belladonna, and hemlock are all massively poisonous. And they, if you get in contact with it, a little too much of it, it will kill you. And I don't, know what, I don't know all that much about poison, about the only thing I know is really all that matters. When something is poisonous, you stay away from it. We used to work at a garage, and there was uh, this bottle it used to just hang up away from reach, even a, away from the reach of, a, uh, of an adult person. And it had a skull on it, and crossbones behind the skull, and some liquid inside of it. Well, I didn't really need to ask what that was. I just knew that I wasn't supposed to touch it because it was obviously poisonous. But poison and its effect on the human body is often lethal. If you breathe in poison or if you get in contact or you ingest something that is poisonous, what happens is, I should have clarified this with our doctor over here, but um, with the poison, when it gets in contact with you, what happens is it gets involved with your essential cells within your body, it compromises your cells, and without the use of those cells, you are obviously going to die. For instance, if you breathe in too much carbon monoxide, what it's going to do is it's going to affect your red blood cells, and your red blood cells carry oxygen throughout your body, but if you, if you suck in too much carbon monoxide, it's going to take away the use of your red blood cells, and it's going to kill you. So you can have a totally perfect body. Everybody here looks pretty healthy to me. But if you come in contact with carbon monoxide, too much of it, it's going to kill you. So you have good hands, you have a good brain, you have a good heart, you have a good overall physical body. But if you get in contact with that kind of poison, it can spread throughout your good body and totally end your life. And as we consider this portion of scripture this morning, Jesus is going to warn against the poisonous impact of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Like poison, the the teaching of these men had the ability to to spread throughout one's body, spiritual body, and to do an incredible amount of damage. But the story begins in verse 1, where we see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees make their way to Jesus. And the Pharisees, I mean, we've noted these guys several times already, all throughout the book of Matthew, we've explicitly dealt with, the Pharisees, and they were legalists, right? They imposed standards, they imposed the traditions onto the people of Israel. Yet although they did that, although they were legalistic, although they struggled with that, they actually were quite doctrinally sound. They held the Old Testament scriptures to be authoritative and so forth. They believed in things like resurrections. They believed in angels, a couple of things that may be harder to believe in. But things that are certainly contained within the Bible. So in many ways, the Pharisees were doctrinally sound, yet they were relentless in their pursuit of moral perfection. They were constantly seeking to show themselves to be outwardly moral and to demonstrate that morality to all of the people. But you also have the Sadducees within this passage. And we haven't really touched the the Sadducees that much. Anybody know the song, I Don't Want to Be a Pharisee? I Don't Want to Be a Pharisee? Because they're no Pharisees. Or I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so Sadducee. It just rhymes. It's not true. I don't think the Sadducees within this passage are sad. They don't come across that way at all. But the Sadducees here are doctrinally liberal. Okay? So you have the Pharisees on one side. They're pretty doctrinally conservative. You have the Sadducees on the other side. And they're doctrinally liberal. They were really the, the free thinkers of the society. They were far more open-minded. And as a result, they tended to be less biblical than the Pharisees. For instance, they accepted the first five books of the Bible, but they denied that resurrections could happen. So Sadducees denied that resurrections could happen, and they also denied that there were angels, which is kind of interesting, because that's kind of a, a given by all of us. we trace angels all throughout the scripture. But they did not believe in resurrections, they did not believe in angels, and they also did not believe that your soul goes on and lives forever in one or two places. So these guys typically were a little less conservative. They were a little more liberal in their theology. So there was this real chasm between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, the, and as a result of their doctrinal differences, like even in the church today, there, were, there was division. They were often fighting over their differences and had a hard time coming over or coming together for anything, which is why it's so important within this passage that they're together. Right? Where you see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming to Jesus... As one. These two groups were often divided. Yet now they have a common enemy. So they're joining forces. They're becoming allies. And they're seeking to bring Jesus down. And the reason that they're coming to Jesus is very clear in verse 1. Look at there with me. They came to test Him. So they came to test Jesus. Now now what does a test prove? You remember back when you were in school. Or some of you are still in school. Some of you are teachers. And you give tests to kids. But what does a test prove? Prove. It it proves that you have the knowledge. It proved that if you understood what you were supposed to understand, and if you could act on that knowledge and be able to be tested on it and be able to put down the right answers and so forth. Yet the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come to Jesus in order to test him. And what they're asking for, what they're testing him over, is a sign from heaven. You remember back in Matthew 4 where Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. And while He was there, He was tested by the devil. And so these Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're coming to Jesus in like manner in order to test Him. But I want you to remember particularly in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is interacting with these, or with Satan. What is one of the responses that Jesus gives to Satan concerning testing? He says, You shall not Put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus, as God, was not one who should be under the scrutiny of testing from these men, right? Jesus is not some sort of dog that is supposed to perform on command. Jesus is not some sort of sideshow or some sort of freak show where you pay a few pennies and you go in and you just see him do these incredible things. Jesus did not bring his miracles. At the request of those who are looking to test Him, what He does is He he shows His miracles and He does miracles for those who come to Him in faith. And that is a big difference, isn't it? People who come to Jesus and they're like, okay Jesus, show me something. Show me some sort of sign. Show me something that you're real. But then you have other people who come to Jesus and say, I'm broken, I have nothing, I am destitute. Show me yourself. And he reveals himself and he does miracles for those who come to him in faith. And we've seen this over and over within the book of Matthew. Even the Gentiles, the woman who had a demon possessed daughter, the centurion, when they come to Jesus and they say, Help me. But they have faith. And these Pharisees and Sadducees are not coming to Jesus in faith, they're coming to test him. But these men come asking for a sign from heaven. And what I find absolutely remarkable is that although they are asking for this sign from heaven, they fail to see that the sign from heaven is standing in front of them. The sign of heaven, Christ himself, is standing in front of them. This long-awaited Messiah, the one who had been prophesied about over and over within the pages of the Old Testament was finally there. He was standing right in front of them. This one who had been talked about all the way back in the pages of Genesis is now before them as God in the flesh and they completely failed to see Him as the sign from heaven. If they would but look upon Jesus with eyes of faith, it would all make sense to them. Yet because of their hearts of pride, they couldn't see past their own nose. These were men who were interested in seeing a sign from Christ. But they were not interested in seeing Christ himself. People often say, if, if God would only show him to me. I'm, I'm trying to hear that kind of thing. If God would only just give me kind of some sort of sign. Maybe he could even send me an angel. Or just kind of work this really big miracle in my life. People say that kind of thing all the time. They say that if, if Jesus would even just present himself to me in some sort of dream. Then I would. Believe in Christ, but they wouldn't. They would not. Jesus could do something like that, and they would not. How do we know this? Because Jesus had revealed himself to these men. He was standing right in front of them and they did not believe. So anytime you hear somebody asking for some sort of sort of sign that Jesus exists, it's ridiculous. Because if Jesus were even standing before them, they would not believe. Friends, are you interested in seeing a sign from heaven? Are you interested in seeing the King of heaven? We do not even join here together for worship looking for some sort of sign. We don't look for some kind of like back in Daniel where the hand comes out and is writing on the wall. We're not looking for anything like that. We're not looking for some sort of sign because we have already beheld Christ. We have looked upon Christ with eyes of faith and we have seen him and that is all that we need. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We have experienced His favor and His love in our life. The sign has been given and He has achieved everything on our behalf. And so these Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus to test Him asking for this sign from heaven. But look how Jesus responds to them in verses 2 and 3. He answered them, when it is evening you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red in the morning. It will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Can anybody boil that down a little bit better? Anybody? I'm actually asking. Anybody? Yeah. Is it the saying about the Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take morning. How many knew that? That was biblical. That's a biblical idea. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. These religious leaders, they had the ability to look at the sky in the morning and determine what the weather would be for the day. They could look at the sky and do the same. The the common grace that God had given these men 2,000 years ago gave them the ability to understand The weather. So they were pretty good at being meteorologists in terms of the weather, but they could not understand the signs of the time. So the punchline of it all is this. You religious people, you know how to interpret the weather, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. Although they considered themselves to be spiritually astute, they could only interpret the weather patterns and they could not interpret spiritual patterns. They understood what kind of weather was coming, but they didn't understand that the kingdom of God had come. And so when Jesus says the signs of the times, a lot of times when we say signs or times or whatever, we're kind of referring to the the, the eschaton, right? The end times and so forth. But Jesus is not talking about the end times when he says the signs of the time. He is talking about the signs of that time. What was going on in that moment of history where Jesus is present on earth? So they could not even... See what was going on in their own country. With the kingdom of God advancing. And the kingdom of Satan having to draw back. Where Christ was preaching and teaching repentance. Showing what a true lover of God looks like. Healing people and casting out demons and everything. They could not see that. So the kingdom of God had come. And it had come in full force. Yet these religious leaders were so naive... To the spiritual kingdom of God. Their focus was on the mundane, opposed to the great spiritual realities of the kingdom of God. They could not see the signs of the times. But notice how Jesus finishes his statement in verse 4 An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. An evil and adulterous generation. They seek for a sign. Again, these are these are the religious bigwigs of the day. These are the ones that you want to get in good with. These aren't the ones that you know. It's kind of interesting. Anytime you tell somebody you're a pastor, it's kind of oh, say a prayer to the man upstairs for me. Or, like they think that like I have some kind of like ability to talk to God more than they do, which is bogus, obviously. But these are the kinds of guys that you want to get in good with, right? You, You want them to kind of affirm the way that you're living and so forth. Yeah, here's Jesus. Yeah, you guys, you're an evil and adulterous generation because you are seeking for a sign. So it is absolutely no wonder why the Pharisees and Sadducees are joining forces here to test Jesus. There would be a sign given to them, but it would be the sign of Jonah. Now we have seen this. Actually, turn back to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, just a couple pages over. Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to look in verse 38. We've seen this sign of Jonah before, um, but what exactly is Jesus talking about here? Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what is the sign of Jonah? As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and spat out. So Christ would be in the belly of the earth for three days. And he would arise out of the grave. And so the simple answer is that the sign of Jonah is going to be the resurrection of Jesus. Many of you know the story of Jonah and how uh, he went off and he disobeyed the Lord. He ended up getting swallowed by the great fish and he was spat out again. But when Jonah got to Nineveh, he was very obviously able to tie the situation of him being swallowed by the fish to his preaching in Nineveh. Nineveh and so when Jonah gets to Nineveh he's able to relay what happened to him to the people of the town and when he told them that story and was able to give them evidence of it they caught a glimpse of the great judgment and salvation of God and the whole place repents the whole city of Nineveh ends up falling in sackcloth and ashes as a result of the great sign this great miracle that had happened in Jonah's life. And so yet Jesus would be in the belly of the earth for three days. And he would arise out of that tomb. And the difference is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, unlike the Ninevites, they would not repent. So the sign of Jonah happens. He gets swallowed. He goes to Nineveh. The whole city repents. Jesus would go into the belly of the earth. He would arise out of the belly of the earth. And they would not repent. The Pharisees and the Sadducees would remain the same. And we know this from Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Where the religious leaders of that day paid off the soldiers to say that Jesus' body had been stolen instead of being resurrected. They knew that Jesus said he would be raised. They weren't stupid. They understood the story of Jonah and the sign that Jesus was referring to. And they refused to believe. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And an evil and adulterous generation disregards the sign given. And the sign of Jonah, the resurrection of Christ, if it is disregarded, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees would perish eternally. And if we disregard the resurrection, if we disregard the sign of Jonah, then we will likewise perish. But the story here continues. Like other times we've seen, Jesus ends up withdrawing from this situation. He knows that these men are seeking to destroy him, and so he pulls away. And the text indicates that he and his disciples get into a boat, they get onto the sea, and they go to the other side of Galilee. And when they get there, we see that Jesus is still contemplating the conversation that he has just had with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. So Jesus tells them to to watch or to beware. Another way of saying this is to watch out or to be on some sort of guard. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is dangerous, right? It's poisonous, like we talked about earlier. And it's evident within verse 7 that the disciples have absolutely no clue that Jesus is talking to them on a spiritual level at this moment. They thought he was talking about the Pharisees and Sadducees' actual bread, it was like, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We didn't bring any bread. So it's kind of this weird interaction. They're showing a, a little bit that they're spiritually dense. This is not a bright and shining moment for the disciples. He mentions leaven on a spiritual level, and they immediately think, oh, actual bread that we're supposed to be eating. But it shows where their mind is, and it shows where the mind of Christ is. Jesus is still contemplating the spiritual problem of the conversation that He had just had with these religious rulers. And He reiterates it in verse 11. To beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, then they understood that He did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says that leaven... He says, Levin and his disciples interpret his word too literally and think that he's talking about the lack of bread in their possession. But he's talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we'll get back to that teaching idea in a minute. But look at what Jesus says in verse 8. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? How many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? The Pharisees and the Sadducees were an evil and adulterous generation. And the disciples of Jesus are of little faith. Jesus says they have little faith. And then he rattles off all of these questions. Why are you discussing that you have no bread? Why do you not yet perceive Don't you remember the feedings of the thousands? How are you failing to understand what I'm talking about? The question that maybe most startles me in these questions is, do you not yet perceive? You people that have been following me for a year and a half, do you not get it yet? Do you not perceive? Do you not have spiritual antenna to know when I'm speaking spiritually to understand what I have to say? He's he's charging them with these questions. They're concerned over their lack of bread to eat. They're concerned that they had forgotten to bring bread with them. But they aren't concerned at all about the spiritual battle going on with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the battle in their own hearts of being of little faith. They themselves are unable to understand the signs of the times. The disciples did not perceive. But do you perceive? Where's our concern? What are the things that we're concerned about? What are the things that pull us down, drag us down, worry, make us worry about, give us anxiety? What are those things? What are you concerned about in your life? How often do we get concerned about the temporal temporal in comparison to our concern over the eternal. How do we so often get concerned about the clothes on our back, right? And our grocery bill, and the electric bill, and what God is going to provide us with. We get so worried and anxious and wonder how or if God is going to provide in our specific situations. And when we compare that with where our concern is spiritually... Where is it? How does the scale fall? Are you mega concerned about the things of this world and the the physical things that are going on in your life in comparison to the spiritual? Or are you concerned about the spiritual things that are going on? The, The wickedness and the evil and all that is going on in the world around us and the lack of faith in our own hearts. Are we spiritually concerned in comparison to our physical concerns? These disciples had little faith. And we so often have little faith as well. But think with me about the problem that Jesus is addressing here. He's addressing the leaven, or the poison even, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which he clearly refers to in verse 12 as the teaching. Teaching from the Bible should and must function in a a manner like leaven, or even a manner like poison, just with a positive effect. It should be something that is taught and it enters your mind and it enters your heart and it begins to change you and it begins to make you more and more like Jesus. But what's going on here is that the leaven or the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees was entering into people and it was beginning to make them like leaven goes into a dough. It was making them into something that they weren't supposed to be. Which is why Jesus warns us about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It has this kind of effect. Specifically, as one person put it, the teaching of the Pharisees is more like ritual, and the teaching of the the Sadducees is more like reason. The Pharisees, like we've mentioned before, they're very ritualistic, and all of their ritual led them to this really great outward morality, where they looked great on the outside and were very moral. They taught these man-made rituals and as though they were the word of God, they raised their children in accordance with these rituals. Their wives would have been very moral in outward appearance and the result would have looked very shiny. They would have had that perfect family that everybody would have wanted. The Sadducees were a bit more on the side of reason, which is why they, they didn't believe in angels or the resurrection. Those were things that seemed to, to really neglect reason. We can't really reason through that, therefore we're not going to believe it. So they denied the possibility. And these are really the two sides that Jesus is dealing with. The teaching of ritual and the teachings of reason. And we need to be aware of these teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and we need to be on guard on this kind of teaching, even in our own day. We need to be sure that we are strongly and purposefully attaching to ourselves the teaching of Christ. We want to learn from Christ through His Word. We want to learn all about Him. And as we behold Him in the Word, we will be more and more changed to be like Him. So the doctrines of Christ are pure and holy. It is in Christ where we find the truth. It is in Christ where we find the purpose of being moral. It is even in Christ where we find actual reason. And so we don't want to only watch out for ourselves though, but we need to watch out for our kids. It will not do to simply teach our children to be moral for the sake of being moral in order to look good on the outside. And neither would it be good to teach them to have minds of reason that they have no need of faith in order for them to progress on their spiritual journey. So consider yourself, as you're raising your grandchildren, as you're raising your children and grandchildren and your interactions with them, as you're even involved with teaching the kids here at church and so forth, consider how you're raising them. Are we raising our kids to be little Pharisees? Are we raising our kids to be little Sadducees? So are we teaching them to be like little Pharisees and that they are very moral as children, But they are faithless. Or are we teaching our children to be little Sadducees in that we create very rational children who look to what they see and are very good at being analytical and figuring out things in their own mind as things go on in life, yet they live lives that don't need any kind of faith. The teaching of Pharisees and Sadducees, if given to our children, is going to be like leaven. It's going to be like poison in their souls and it's going to work its way through the child and it will completely take over their lives and i think this is where a lot of parenting breaks down or even a lot of adult living our own living breaks down we want our kids to be good but why do we want them to be good what do we want to motivate them to be good do we want them to live moral lives to please mom and dad Do we want them to be moral so that they don't get in trouble? Do we want them to be moral because it makes them look good and it makes us look good? Or do we want them to be moral because it honors and please God from whom all morality flows anyway? So don't teach your kids to be like little Pharisees where they love to achieve some kind of moral standard without loving the one who has given the standard. That is lethal. To, uh, to teach them to love this bar and they just become successful at obedience and being moral and having a great outward look about them or do they love the one who has set the bar the one from whom the law has flown f- f- come from it's the same on the other side with raising little Sadducees or being like Sadducees ourselves like I mentioned before the, the Sadducees were very free thinking they accepted some of the Bible but not All of it. They thought themselves to be rational thinkers. And frankly, I think being Sadducees, that's kind of the world that we live in today. where We're not taught that being moral is the right thing to do by society. But being your own person. Being a free thinker. Being rational. And whatever is true for you is true for you. And whatever your moral standard is, your moral standard for you. So I think the world that we're living in is much more like the Sadducees. Because we don't really place moral standards onto kids anymore because they need to decide what that is for themselves. And so our kids are being raised in this society where free thinking and whatever you choose for yourself is right for you and nobody can tell you otherwise. But again, as parents in your own lives and in the lives of your children, you you don't want to teach your kids to trust in what they think about themselves. You want to teach them to trust in what God thinks about them. What does God think about your sexuality? That is what you need to know. What does God think about your gender? That is what you need to know. And we need to teach our children and labor to teach them about the Lord and His Word, realizing that it is from His Word that we will find all truth. If they want actual reason, if they want to actually be able to think through things in the way that God has wanted us to, they're going to need to understand the Word of God. It is from God's Word where we find the truth. It is from His Word where we find a guide for our conscience. It is from the Word that all other teachings and all other understandings must bow. So we need to be very careful that we do not raise little Pharisees to be moralistic. Or little Sadducees who are free thinking and decide whatever they want on their, for themselves. We don't want to train them in that kind of a way. We must give them Christ. That is so important. Even when you're disciplining and when you're instructing, that it's always coming back to Jesus. Even when we're talking about the Bible, I don't want to teach you to dare to be a Daniel and be bold in a lion's den or to... Fight the giants in your life like David or all those kinds of things. That's, that's simply telling you to be good for the sake of being good. That's great, but that needs to lead us to Jesus, right? Where David has killed Goliath, that's great, that's honorable, a wonderful thing, and really a great example of boldness in the time of trial and and wanting to please God. Yet that's going to lead us to Christ and what He has done. So as we're disciplining, as we're talking to our children, as we're teaching them about the Bible, we want to take everything and lead it back to Jesus, because He is the one that we need to teach them to love. We don't want them to, to simply be moral. We don't want them to simply be able to reason We want to teach them about Jesus from which true reason flows and it's for us as well. Don't be impressed with yourself when you feel like you've attained some sort of standard. Be humble and love God and continue your pursuit after Christ. That is what is important. To love Him, not to love some sort of standard or to some sort of understanding. The way to live ourselves and the way to raise our kids is to live lives of faith. Jesus again looks at his disciples and he says, Oh, you of little faith. And I think we like to say, Well, the disciples, they're always like lacking faith. They're a bunch of. No, we are right there with them in that boat. We lack faith. The book of Romans says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you want your faith to be developed and you want to grow in your faith, then you need to get into the word of God. This is what God is going to use to continue to produce more and more faith in you. But on the flip side of that, what is going to detract from your living a life of faith and what will be like leaven or what will be like poison in your life is false teaching. Beware of the leaven of false teaching, but dwell upon the truths of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage and We pray that you'll guide us into all truth. We pray that you, by your Spirit, will continue to guide us into your word and help us to understand what is true. We live in a world that does not appreciate your standards, does not appreciate those who think biblically. But we pray, Lord, that we will be bold and that you will give us the strength as we seek to win the lost, to be able to combat the leaven. That is all around us. We thank you for the opportunity to be here again this morning. It's all in Christ's name. Amen.